Good morning. Today's date, November 11, 2001. The scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 22, 27 through 28, 31 and 32, 33 through 35, 38 and 39, and 43 and 46. I think you'll see why as I read. This is the second in a series on Sermon on the Mount. So if you'll turn with me to Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment, and if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council, and if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And finally, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Well, last week we covered the Beatitudes in the Matthean version, and this week we come to the famed antitheses of Jesus in the mountain sermon in his comments about the law. Now the standards of the antitheses are set extremely high. And so the question always becomes, how do I understand these six demand sayings of Jesus in his antitheses about the law? They seem beyond my practice and unachievable. Well, I want to try to help in this lesson, which is a very tough lesson. I mean, this is a very, very tough lesson from a very tough teacher. But I want to try to put this in perspective and help us to see what he is really, I think, trying to get over. 
the first thing I want to say is this, that in the sermon, Jesus offers a ringing affirmation of the law and its permanent validity, but it is clearly core law about which he speaks. Do not think, he says, that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, this is one of the amen sayings, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Not one letter would seem to imply all 613 of the rules of first covenant law, the 613 rules of the Old Testament. But it is clear that that cannot be true. A principal role of interpreting scripture, as I always try to say, is that every scripture must be interpreted in the light of all other scripture. In other words, taking a single verse or a set of verses in isolation leads one to erroneous conclusions, so that one has to examine every scripture with consciousness of statements or verses in other scripture. Now, repeatedly in the Gospels, Jesus broke the law. Repeatedly. That's one of the reasons he was tried and killed. A classic example is the healing events on the Sabbath. If one just looks at the 12th chapter of Matthew alone, he did away with the healing restrictions, he did away with travel restrictions and work restrictions, and he decisively said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew 15:11, he did away with dietary restrictions. He says nothing that goes in through the mouth defiles a person but what comes out of the mouth. What goes into the mouth, he says, goes into the sewer. But what comes out of the mouth is what the heart speaks. And so in one fell swoop, he dismisses all the dietary laws. He broke the law by eating with sinners and with Gentiles. He broke the law by conversing with the Samaritan woman. And he certainly broke the custom by hanging around with women throughout his two-year ministry. It was the women who were constantly with him. He broke law after law, and therefore it is impossible for one to say that jot and tittle of law in the Old Testament in its totality will be fulfilled and demanded. It's not possible because he showed it with his own life. So it follows that the ringing affirmation of the permanent validity of the law applies to core law. And the core law is quite simple. The two great commandments to love God and to love neighbor and the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. In other words, ritual laws and set-apart laws are not covered in this discussion. Now be careful here. It is perfectly appropriate for an Orthodox Jew to seek to keep all 613 of the laws as a sign of devotion to God. There's nothing wrong about that at all. One can avoid pork if one wishes to do so as a measure of one's devotion. 
but ritual law cannot be elevated to core law and required of all people of faith. In Luke 11:42, Jesus makes clear what the problem is. He says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. It is these that you ought to have practiced. The danger is that there is a consistent elevation of the ritual and set-apart laws to dominance in the religious expression and a total abandonment of God's call for justice and for the love of God. So the first thing I want us to see is that in the ringing endorsement of the law, Jesus is not talking about the law in its totality, but the core issues for which all are responsible. And these are important because he says, if you teach others to keep the core commands, you'll be great in heaven. And if you teach others to break them, you will be called least in heaven. And this involves two types of teaching. One would be formal teaching. It's what we teach our children or what we try to do in a class like this. But a great deal of the teaching is behavioral. It's how we live our lives. So one may teach adherence to the law in a way that we live our lives, which diminishes it, even if we claim to be devoted to the verbal commandments of the law or even teach them. So he believes this issue of the law is a tremendously important issue. And that's the first thing that I want to say. Now, the second thing I want to say is that this passage, the passage on the antitheses, is a new ethic, but it is also a Christologic statement. Father Raymond Brown, commenting on this passage, said, the ethics of the new lawgiver are more authoritative than Moses. The law, at least the Decalogue, was given to Moses on a mountain. There is absolutely no question that Moses is the greatest figure of the first covenant, greater than the subsequent great prophets. He received revelations that were world-shattering. He said that God was one, that there was one God. He said that God was being itself. The only unambiguous definition of God is that God is being itself. His name is I Am. He said that we were to love God exclusively with all heart, soul, mind. And he said that we were to love neighbor derivatively. Moses was so great that John of Patmos, in his vision of the apocalypse, in chapter 15.3 of the Revelation, says that the saved in the kingdom of God, those who conquered and are present in the kingdom of God, sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb, Christ, saying, Great and wonderful are thy deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. But on another mountain, much later, the teacher of Nazareth said, You have heard that the law given by Moses says, But I say.
scholars say this must have blown the minds of the hearers. The demand sayings, the I sayings, and the great I am sayings are unchallenged evidence that Jesus knew of his derivation, knew of his sonship from God, knew of his messiahship. The I sayings and the I am sayings are unequivocal evidence that he knew who he was, where he came from, and what his purpose was. In the doubled amen statement that is perhaps the most astonishing of all the things he said, amen, amen, verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am the name of God. These great sayings are clear Christologic claims that he made on the mountain, just as Moses made his claims from the mountain. Moses said this, but I say something different. In the mountain sermon, then, we see a powerful Christologic claim that is totalitarian in its delivery. And I mean by that not allowing alternative interpretation or loyalty. He speaks in totalitarian fashion that allows no other interpretation. So that's the second thing. Now the third thing is this. In the antitheses, the movement is from outward observance to inward spirit and motivation of the heart. The old law was about outward performance and observance. The new ethic is about inward motivation of the heart. Archibald Hunter says that Jesus is calling for truth in the inward parts. And if you summarize it out of the verses that Buddy read, it goes like this. The law said no murder, I say no anger. The law said no adultery, I say no lust. The law said divorce on condition, I say no divorce. The law said no false swearing. I say no swearing at all. The law said an eye for an eye. I say no retaliation at all. The law said love your neighbor. I say love your enemies. Six antitheses superseding the old law given by Moses. You see, Jesus understood that anger is incipient murder and that lust is incipient adultery. It is the motivation from which outward acts flow, and he wishes to speak to the inner motivation of the heart. Now, there are two dangers in hearing Jesus here. One is to water down the demands and say he didn't really mean this. And the other is to take them as salvation standards and be in despair because they are unachievable. So those are the two dangers. 
to water them down or to take them as standards of salvation and since they are so high and we cannot achieve them that we miss out on the kingdom of God. And I'm going to discuss this point last. But I quote Hunter about the second point. He said, in all this, Jesus was not laying down a new code of laws on the perfect keeping of which a person's salvation would depend. If he had been, he would have been laying on his followers a far heavier burden than he accused the Pharisees of doing with literal interpretations of the Mosaic law. See, Hunter's point is this. If you take this in a literal sense, then Jesus has put a load on us that was far greater than the load that was demanded by Hebraic laws delivered by Moses. That law that Paul spent an enormous amount of time saying, it's enslaving and we have to be free from it. It kills the soul, not because the things are wrong, but because we're entrapped by it. And in fact, sometimes the thou shalt not initiate the desire to shall, Paul would say. It would be entirely in opposition to Jesus' call to us, where he says, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden light. The yoke of the antitheses is not easy. And so we have to understand it in a different way than literally. I don't know how many times I've been asked a question like this. Did Jesus really mean if someone sues me for something, in this case a coat, that I'm obligated to give him my cloak also? Did he really mean that? Well, I think the answer is no. He told us that we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He doesn't insist that we be victims of con men or swindlers. I mean, common sense tells you that. It's a motive that he is talking about here, that if one sued, that one responds in a way that does not eliminate the antitheses. For example, that even when it's unfair, that one does not allow oneself to become filled with hate or revenge. These are operational standards that are not literal. The antitheses do not cause us to do foolish things. There might be circumstances where one kid's in a fight or something like that, you know, slapped in the face, would just turn away. But on the other hand, he's talking about the emotional response and the way that one seeks temporal justice. So these should be taken absolutely seriously. They should not be watered down, but they should not be taken as literal standards, the keeping of which is necessary for salvation. In fact, and this is the last point, the demand sayings are goals of sanctification, not statements about salvation. The simplest way to say it is that Jesus has set high standards for our hearts and our minds and our actions. And the goal is to be what the Father wants us to be. 
He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is a symbolic statement. I mean, who could be perfect like God? What he's saying here is that you should have as the goal for your life the type of life that God considers to be worthy of those that follow him. It is an aim and not an achievement. He wishes us to progress on a journey toward a human life which reflects the goal of the Father for us. He's talking about an eternity kind of life. Now, I want to remind you that in the Christian faith, we divide the journey into two large categories. The first category is called by the theologians, in fact, the New Testament uses the term, justification. And the second category is sanctification. Now, justification is the first grace event. In the cross, our sins and transgressions, past, present, and future, are forgiven. In the six antitheses, I am forgiven of anger and injury. I am forgiven of lust or adultery. I am forgiven for my part when a marriage doesn't stay together. The justification covers failures in all of the six antitheses. Same thing would be said about retaliation or failure to pray for those that are enemies. In other words, all six of them are covered by the justifying event of Christ on the cross, where our sins in totality are forgiven. Now, sanctification is the rest of the trip after entry into the journey of the Christian life. It is the progression towards Christ-likeness, and it is a lifelong journey after justification. It, an incorporation of these goals of the antitheses into our everyday life. Now, Paul would paraphrase this in another way, exactly like Jesus meant in his famous statements about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. What he says is that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So you can march them right back into the antithesis. Self-control. Well, I've got to control my lust. Gentleness. I'm going to not retaliate. You see, this is a practical translation into adjectival behavior entirely in accord with the antithesis that Jesus brings out in the mountain sermon. And this journey, as I say, belongs to all Christians. Paul goes on to say, after listing these, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with passions and desires. Let us, therefore, be guided by the Spirit. The important thing about sanctification is it doesn't matter where we've been. In sanctification, it only matters where we're going. That's an important thing for Christians to know. It doesn't matter where we've been, except instructionally. It matters where we're going. And that's what the sanctification process is all about. It is a goal, and it is never complete, but it is for our progress. Now I want to read you the paragraph in the Westminster Confession about sanctification, because I want to make a couple of other points before we quit. It's very useful to read the great confessions of the church. 
because although the language is sometimes antiquated, the truths therein have to have been inspired. The elders who wrote the Westminster Confession understood it all. And it's good to go back and read. One of the things that's wonderful about the Reformed churches is that they write down what they believe. Many churches have no doctrinal record against which to check the teaching. The confessions of the church are enormously useful. Listen to what they said about sanctification. They who are effectually called and regenerated, that is justified, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin in one's life is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. The longer you're in this journey, he says, the more the problems that we have become defeatable. They are weakened and mortified. And they, that is the sanctified, are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no person shall see the Lord. Remember in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that's what sanctification is about. This sanctification is throughout in the whole person, yet imperfect in this life. In other words, there's no consideration whatever that the goals for sanctification in the antitheses will be given once or ever completely in the full journey. They are yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. This was Paul's statement, you know, who will deliver me from this body of death? The things I don't want to do, I continually do, and the things I want to do, I don't do. It's this war between the spirit and the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. That part of us, our soul, which is justified and saved, he says, with time, overcomes the residual power of sin. The regenerate part, the justified part, doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is what in our church sanctification means. It is a journey towards the victory of the sanctified, of the justified part over the residual sins that will haunt us until the day that we die. And it is these that Jesus speaks about in the antitheses. Someday, somewhere, I want you to be in a place where you don't get angry anymore. It is a progress. It was interesting to me that John Bunyan in the Pilgrim's Progress clearly understood exactly what the Westminster elders said in our confession. At the very moving end of the first part, Christian, the pilgrim, he's already been justified. 
this heavy burden of sin on his back, falls off when he sees the cross. And he begins to journey towards the kingdom of God. He and his companion, Hopeful, are traveling together. I rode on a plane this week down to Austin with the chief executive of the Children's Hospital. We were talking about events, and he said, I'm going to ask my pastor to give me a document about hope. He said, I know about final hope, but we say faith, hope, and love abide these three. We know a lot about faith, and we know a lot about love, but we don't talk much about hope. He's looking for hope, just as our president was saying, you know, in these difficult times. But Bunyan has Christian, the pilgrim, traveling with hopeful. And as they approach the city of God, they can see the great spires and hear the great choirs in the near distance. But as they come, they see something they didn't want to see necessarily. There's a great river there, and that river is death. And Christian, and I'll say why in just a second, Christian and Hopeful ask two men with shining faces who are on the other side of the river, is there any way to get across? And they answer in biblical terms. It's only two to wit, Enoch and Elijah ever crossed, you know, biblical standards. They went into heaven without dying. And so then the question comes from the travelers in the quaint English of John Bunyan. Are the waters all of a depth? Is there a ford? Is there an easier place to cross? And, of course, the answer from the men with shining faces was this. It is as shallow or as deep as you believe in the king of the place. If you really believe in the king of the place, there'll be firm footing as you cross the river. But when Christian and Hopeful entered the water, we are told that great darkness and horror fell over Christian. Bunyan wrote that Christian thought he should die in the river and never achieve the kingdom because he was much in troublesome thought of the sins that he had committed both since and before he became a pilgrim. Bunyan understood that we never cease to sin after justification, that that residual corporate body is there, that body of death and mortality is there with its power. And when we approach death, I think we will think of all the sins we did before and after. And that made the river very deep for Christian. He was much troubled. Bunyan understood exactly what the Westminster elders said, that we continue in sin even as we're being sanctified. But the slope should be upwards towards Christ, up and down, up and down, but a slope should be upward. We should be better this year than we were last year and better the next year than we were the year before in the slope which is upward. And then Hopeful speaks to Christian the incomparable words, be of good cheer. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And when he says that, Christian says, oh, I see him. And he remembers Isaiah, when you walk through the rivers, I will be with thee, and they will not overcome thee. The sanctification process goes on. Now, what the Mountain Sermon says in the Antitheses is that the Savior of the world has set high standards for us. I sometimes say in my own teaching of medical students, 
We don't teach by fear. We teach by pride. We set high standards, and I expect the medical students to achieve those high standards. It wouldn't be a good place if I didn't set high standards for them. And it wouldn't be a good faith if the Savior of the world did not set high standards for us, humanly unachievable standards for us, because it fundamentally shows that he has hope in us, that we can achieve it. He calmly assumes that we can do it. And that is a wonderful gift to know. And he wouldn't have listed the demands if he didn't think that we could achieve them or move toward them. Now I want to close with a single statement which has always been helpful to me. There was a famous rabbi called Ben Ezra, and he said something very wonderful. What I aspired to be and was not comforts me. Do you see what he's saying? I've set the standards to be with God as I think he wants me to have. And I have failed, but it comforts me that they are my goal. What I aspired to be and was not comforts me. So comfort to all the travelers this morning who take the antitheses seriously and pass them on. Comfort to the travelers because we've seen the goal and wish Christ's goal to be ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for the second sermon on the mountain. We are challenged but also honored that the antitheses should have been given and that we are to appropriate them into our lives, not for our salvation, which is secured in the cross event, as we have said, for sin in the past, for sin in the present, and for sin in the future. But the antitheses should be our goals in sanctification. Help us cling to the words of our own confession that in the end, the regenerate part of us, the redeemed part of us, will win, and we will change, and sin will diminish as we approach that final river. And if fears come because our sins have been great and our failures not minor, help us to remember the words of the traveling companion, hopeful, Jesus Christ cleanses thee from all sins. And I would add, in these times and these days, that you would make each of us traveling companions, hopefuls, in this mixed-up world in which we live. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.